Just a reminder as we begin this day that this scene in our gospel takes place early in Holy Week with Jesus and in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a place where he's attacked the powers that be. He's turned over the tables of the money changers and he's, and he's really made a space in there for the sick and the poor to be healed and, and to be comforted by him. Now, as you may imagine, this doesn't sit very well with the religious leaders, with the people in power. <clears throat> as Jesus comes in, kind of like a tornado of teaching and healing and all kinds of other actions and words. So they ask him, kind of a fair question, I suppose, what, what authority do you have to be doing these things, to be saying these things? And Jesus tells stories. He tells fiery parables, actually. And we, Paula preached, Paula, Pastor Paula preached on one last week. She'll get another one, probably the most difficult one next week. And then we have this wonderful one here, right in the middle. Jesus has, has really turned up the intensity on those who have used their power to set up an, an obstacle course of human judgment that, is, that has less to do with access to God's mercy and love and more to do with kind of sifting out the in-group and the, and the out-group, the us and the them. And boy, that's a problem for Jesus, and that's really a problem for God, of course, as well. And, and I don't know if Jesus is seething with anger at all of this or if he's just focused, but this... This, these parables are really, they're pretty intense. Now notice, if you will, the strange and, and, and loving start to this parable. A landowner who we, who we find out later, later has the means to travel off to a, a distant land, digs a vineyard. Now, now I don't know about you. I've seen, I've seen kind of the overstuffed suit with the golden shovel and the, you know, the, maybe it's a fake hard hat you know, breaking ground, taking one scoopful, uh, but they don't do all of the work. Or, or maybe I've seen someone kind of in the same situation with a big bow or a big ribbon and a, and a big giant scissors ready to cut after something has been built. But this landowner gets in, this, this one who has the means to travel, gets in and digs with his, with his own hands. He, he plants, he, he, he builds this tower. And it's, and it's amazing to see the love that he, that he puts into this. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of standing here in front of my, my garden. When I get a tomato from the store, if I throw a little bit of it away, it's no big deal. But when I have a tomato from my garden, oh man, we're eating every last scrap of that. I might even eat, this, eat the stems somehow. Well, maybe not, but, but all of it's going to be used. If it comes from our garden, man, we are eating every last bit of it. And so I don't know whatever, whatever baggage there might be for you about a landowner or a landlord, but, but this one is knee-deep in the creative process of making this vineyard come to life. Now this image might draw you back to other parts of Scripture as it does for me, particularly to the creation story of, of God getting into the, into the dust and, and breathing into that first human being. And of course the start of this parallel or parable parallels very closely our first reading for today, this reading from Isaiah, and it may be, and it probably would be to those that are listening, that, that they're kind of filling in the blanks of what's going to come next. But this story isn't about sour grapes like it is in Isaiah and God turning over this vineyard to be destroyed. This story is really about unbelievable mercy and ultimate redemption. 
Now that might not seem clear at first because the parable turns very quickly quite violent. The caring landowner with, with dirt under his nails and calluses on his hands from all this work, he turns this vineyard over to tenants, those who will farm it and, and, and give part of the literal fruit to the landowner. Now normally you would get kind of a paid uh, a rent as well as that fruit, but, but the landowner eventually, we'll see that in a minute, only wants, just wants the fruit. So it's a good setup, it's a, it's, and, it, and if it's good management, everybody's going to win. Now this is pretty standard, and perhaps, you know, ironically, it might be something very familiar to these religious leaders who may have had the means to be absentee landlords themselves. But then the harvest comes, and this, this idyllic kind of win-win situation turns terribly sour. The servants come to collect, and... You know, again, that collection is, is pretty merciful, pretty gracious. But one is beaten, one is killed, and one seems to escape being bruised by hurling rocks. Well, now, there's an easy fix for that, and it would have been obvious to those listening, and probably to us as well. The landowner has all the power. Send in the, the authorities, send in the militia, and just route this, this, these, these guys out of there. Get them out of there and, and get some new ones in. Landowners, landowners can do that. They have all the rights in Jesus' day in this situation. But that's not what this landowner does. He sends a second group of servants who meet the same fate, we're told. Well, now it's, it's got to be obvious what he's going to do, but, and you, you may yourself be shaking your head at this foolish landover, or maybe you're feeling sorry for the landowner's servants. But then the landowner does what seems to be the craziest move of all. Now pause here and think about this for a minute. Because I want you to think about your own child. Or your own niece or nephew. Or, or maybe someone in your care. Or someone from our youth group here at church. How much love would you have to have for a place? To send them into a situation like this. Now, maybe some of you think, especially in this community, of military service. Or, or maybe you think of just standing up to unjust power. And those, are, those would be great examples. But the landowner isn't standing up to power. The landowner is the power. He has all of the power here. He can quell this thing easily using other people's children. Yet there seems to be something more with this landlord is that there's not just a deep love for the vineyard, but even for the wicked tenants who are managing it. And while we, we may be looking at this, at this landlord in the parable sending his son, like, like we look at the hero in a, in a horror movie, you know, walking into the trap, like, no, don't do it, don't go in there. While we may be doing that, the really unbelievable part in this parable is not the sending of the son by the landowner. That's the merciful part. Really, the unbelievable part is the logic, the twisted logic of these tenants. I mean, really? This is their plan? To kill the son and then they'll inherit the vineyard? Now, there is some argument that if the son came, maybe the tenants thought that the landowner had died, and so if they killed the son, you know, by law, maybe that would, it would fall into their hands. But I, I find that a little bit of a stretch. I think their logic is just twisted, and I think Jesus is pointing out in this parable how twisted that logic really is, even though it's happening 
right before the world's eyes. Who is so entitled, so self-righteous, so wicked, so power-hungry that they would think they can overthrow the loving landowner by violence? Maybe I should ask it this way. Who kills their creator thinking it will give them life? The answer I keep coming to is we do. The greatest and most tragic irony in the history of the universe is that we kill our creator. Now wait a second, you're saying, right? Wait a second, PJ. What do you mean we? This is about us, the faithful, replacing the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They killed Jesus. They're the wicked tenants. I mean, it's all about just replacing the tenants, isn't it? No. No, and a thousand times no. To think that this text has been used to justify such thoughts, such actions as against the people of God's promise is, is tragic. It's a terrible history, and it has been used for that. And it, the irony of it is it goes completely against the message of this parable. What is the response of the leaders when Jesus asks what the landowner will do now that his servants and his son have been brutalized and killed? They respond with as much violence as the tenants themselves. They say he will put those wretches to a miserable death and he'll get new tenants. But I don't hear an amen from Jesus to their statement. You know, this isn't going to have that kind of an end. No, at this time, at this appointed time, God will raise up the son killed by violence. And so mercy and love that we can hardly imagine in our vengeful, in our vengeful and, and evil hearts will offer life and salvation, extending the promise to Moses and Abraham and Sarah and David and all their descendants. Not canceling it, but extending it out into the whole world, extending this, vine this vineyard even to us here gathered in front of this screen. The death of the Son puts to death our scapegoating, our blaming, our name-calling, our humanity-stealing practices of power and lust and selfishness and ego and a million other things that I could name. Our stiff-necked inability to change to admit wrong, to confess, and to make reparations. Our rationalizations and entitlements and fantasy that we own the creation and the creatures in it. All of this is lifted from our shoulders and put upon the Son, who willingly and innocently carries it to the grave. He can see this burden that we think is life, that is killing us, and he takes it away. And he buries it. And yes, if we go digging into that grave as we do and put on that violence and destruction of our old selves, like putting on moldy burial rags, if we go digging in there and we put that on, the radical love of the Father made known in the Son will trip us up and will shatter us to pieces. It does have power. It will fly in the face of our sin and will crush it with a great boulder power will be wrested from the leaders in Jesus' day. There are consequences. 
It'll be rested as it was in the days of Martin Luther, and it will be rested as it is in our day as well. The landowner's purposes will prevail. You see, the solution isn't replacing the tenants with new ones. The solution is setting a whole new foundation in the sun. A savior on which Paul tells us today in, in the, our reading from Philippians, and I'd love to do another sermon on that as well, but, but a savior on which Paul stands and he redefines what is good fruit, what is success, what is heritage, what is meaning, what is life. Everything, he says, by comparison is garbage. Everything we add to God's mercy in Jesus will corrupt it. This parable may be seen as a warning, and it certainly is. God doesn't, you know, lack teeth here today. Jesus doesn't lack um, authority. He definitely claims that authority, and he speaks a word of warning and judgment to those who are leading and those who are hurting God's people. But only so that we might today see the foolishness of grounding ourselves on anything other than God's mercy and God's love and God's peace and God's forgiveness. We can be grounded and live in this vineyard of God's righteous kingdom, grounded on Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. Amen.